The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, uh, my wife and I, we got married in February of 2000, which is a great advantage to me because I always know how many years we are along in the marriage. I was uh, 21 at the time. She was 20. Uh, We both came from a huge amount of brokenness and sin. Uh, So when we said, I do, we had no idea the amount of commitment that that would take over the long haul. We were googly-eyed youngsters that were flying on hormones and love. And unbeknownst to us, This was the beginning of a journey that would test our resolve in ways that we had no idea. We we did not know what to expect. You see, we were blind. We were blind to how much shaping God would have to do in us both in order to keep our vows. Now, some couples have this beautiful experience of this honeymoon period that is like, you know, this time of just blissful enjoyment right after you get married. That was, that was not our story. We, we went out of the frying pan and into the fire directly into conflict with one another. And there was a lot of conflict in those early days as God began to reveal selfishness, idolatry, sin in my heart. I went into marriage thinking I was a good Christian, that I would be an excellent spiritual leader. I mean, after all, I had learned to read the Bible. I had gone through a one-year school of ministry. Surely, I was now equipped to be the kind of father and husband and leader that God had called me to. Any woman really would be so fortunate to have me in their lives. And I expected her to be eternally grateful to marry me. I don't know why you guys are laughing. (laughs) I can remember one time in an argument with my wife, I I raised my voice and I said, you know, know, I I used to be a really patient person before I married you. (laughs) To which she responded, "Uh, you've never had to be patient when you did whatever you wanted, but you can't do that anymore. You're married. You see, I was blind to the fact that my patience was untested. I was blind to the fact that loving someone else means laying down your life and desiring their good. I was blind to the depths of my own sin and selfishness. I was blind to the true nature of love that would call me into preferring the good of my wife over my own comfort. I was blind to the reality that laying down my life was the path to finding life. Now I could see some of the pieces of what it took to have a good marriage. I had kind of a sum, a rough sketch of, of what it was going to be like. But I could only see in part. It was a partial sight or, or a partial blindness. And you know, partial blindness is something that we all have to deal with. Uh, Whether it is jumping into a relationship or a career, taking on debt, having children. How many of you thought, yeah, I'm going to be the best parent ever? And then you had actual real kids and you were like, oh, there's a learning curve here. (laughs) What about dealing with a long-term illness? We just don't know what we don't know as humans. And partial blindness is something that affects us all. So today in in our passage, we're going to see how Jesus responded to the blindness of his disciples. And our text for today starts with Jesus healing a blind man who sees, but he doesn't see clearly. He needs an additional touch from Jesus. The text then moves to the fact that the disciples see who Jesus is. 
but they don't see him clearly. And then finally, Jesus is going to tell his disciples and the crowd around him that the path of discipleship begins with a cross and ends with glory and power. The first stop is to take up the cross, and the next is to follow Jesus with it, and we just keep doing that until the end, whatever the end is. So we can divide our text from Mark chapter 8, verses 22, all the way through chapter 9, verse 1, into three tidy thought folders for those of you who like to take notes. These are our three headings here. Our outline looks like this, seeing the kingdom clearly. The principle of partial blindness, verses 22 to 26. The proof of partial blindness, verses 27 to 33. In verse 34 to verse 1 of chapter 9, the path to seeing clearly. The path to seeing clearly. Let's go ahead and dive into our text, beginning Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, after the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus has been teaching the disciples to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And Jesus makes his way to the hometown of Peter, of Andrew, and Philip. The town's name is Bethsaida, and it sits at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And it was positioned near the mouth of the Jordan River that fed the Sea of Galilee. Now, as most fishermen know, uh, a prime spot to fish is where a, a tributary spills down into the main body of water, the lake or the Sea of Galilee in this instance, because the fish like to hang out there and, and feed on whatever gets washed down in the creek or the river. And so naturally, this was a fishing village. And while Jesus is there, the locals bring a blind man to Jesus and they ask him to touch and to heal him. Now, the fame of Jesus and the miracles that he's been doing has spread through Israel, and in response, people are bringing the blind, the lame, and the sick to Jesus. This was a normal occurrence. But here, in, in our passage today, Jesus does something in response that may seem strange. Instead of healing him on the spot, he grabs the blind man's hand and leads him out of the village. He grabs a hold of him and then begins navigating his way outside of the village. Imagine the scene where this blind man takes the hold or takes hold of the hand of Jesus as he leads him over obstacles and through the village streets, outside the populous area. And now at this point, both the disciples and the crowd realize that Jesus is going to do something. He's going to, he's going to do a healing. They, they know, they, they've been around him enough to understand he's probably going to do something, but, but they have no idea what he is going to do. They're pretty sure it's going to end in a miracle. But what Jesus does is a shock to them and should be a shock to us. At some point, Outside of the town, Jesus stops. He turns to face the blind man. Now remember, Jesus can do a healing any way that he wants to. I mean, already in the Gospels, we've seen him heal with just a word. We've seen him heal with a touch. He could do whatever he wants. 
But as he stands there, Jesus does the unthinkable. You see his lower jaw starting to move in a circular motion. grabs and gathers the healing substance from his holy mouth. He grabs the face of this blind man to steady his aim. And then he spits right into the eyeballs of a blind man. Now, our reaction here is probably just a fraction of what the reaction was for the crowd there. What are you doing? You just spit in the eyes of a blind man. They felt offense. This was an offensive thing that Jesus was doing. You'll remember even in the crucifixion story that to show disdain for Jesus, what did they do? They spit on him. This is an offensive thing that Jesus is doing. Now, Jesus, of course, is not showing disdain for this man, but he's doing something offensive on purpose, and we'll get a possible reason for that in a minute. Then Jesus lays his hands on the man, and he asks him, do you you see anything? As the man looks up, he tells Jesus, well, I I see people, but they they look like trees walking. I, I, I don't really see them clearly. And then verse 25 tells us, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Again, Jesus is able to heal any way that he wants. He can do whatever he wants in this. But there's something specific that he's doing in this passage. First, he grabs the man's hand, and he says, follow me in your blindness. He leads him outside the community. And then he offends the man by spitting in his face. And then he opens his eyes in a sort of two-stage healing process. And Mark seems to tell the story of the healing as, as this 3D illustration for what comes after this event in seeing the partial blindness of the disciples. The disciples are going to continue to grow in their understanding of Jesus and and who he is and what the kingdom is like. But first, they will be called to take the hand of Jesus and follow him. Then they will be offended by him when he begins to talk about going to the cross. When he begins to talk about a kingdom where the king dies. They see him in part. They see his kingdom partially, but not clearly. But but Jesus is not done with them there. He he comes to them again, and, and after the resurrection, they will see clearly who Jesus is, his true identity and the true nature of his kingdom. And once they see it, there's no way for them to go back the way they came. It's a one way journey, it's a one way trip. They will be living in a new reality. And this could be the point of what is symbolized by the next verses. Then Jesus sends the man back to his home. He tells him he can't go back to the village. Some commentators speculate here about whether Jesus is trying to downplay his own fame or prevent the Romans from catching wind of the Messiah. But ultimately, Jesus sends him home after using his healing as an object lesson for what follows in the passage. So in in this first section here, we see the principle of partial blindness. Now let's follow the storytelling of Mark here as he unfolds the story even more. In verses 27 to 33, the proof of partial blindness And Jesus, verse 27, went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, 
and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Now after Jesus heals the blind man, he leads his disciples north. Now, it just says that they went north to Caesarea Philippi, the villages of, north, uh, of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, what it doesn't tell you is that this was a 31-mile journey, 11 hours of hiking, according to Google Maps. Okay? This was a, a long trip that they took, a whole day's worth of hiking, maybe two days. They ended up heading north and in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and while on the way, Jesus initiates a conversation with his disciples. Now, the location of this conversation is believed to be near the entrance of the cave in a specific village called Pania that was, this cave was, was built with a, a temple to the god Pan right in the front of it. At the, the entrance to this cave, the temple was built right into it so that when you went into worship, you stared into this black abyss in the back. And at the bottom of that was a spring. The spring fed the marshes down below. But, but, it, it was this place of worship with this dark cave that looked like the entrance to hell. And it was consequently called the gates of hell. I actually went there when I went to Israel. And, uh, you know, you can't actually go inside of the cave. But as you stare down into it, you can't see the bottom. It is a bottomless pit, it appears, from the face of the cave. Now, Pan, the god that this temple was dedicated to, looked like Mr. Tumnus from the Chronicles of Narnia. He had the bottom half of a goat and the top half of a man. And in Greek mythology, Pan was the only one who could cross over uh, into Hades and return again. That was the mythology around Pan. And so it makes it very interesting that Jesus here at this location is having this discussion with his disciples. As he says, who do you say that I am at the mouth of the gates of Hades? This historical fact adds incredible color to this conversation. So the disciples hear the question of Jesus, who do you say that I am? And, and, and Jesus, or excuse me, and the disciples respond to Jesus by saying, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And you can tell that there's this buzz around who Jesus is. You, you can tell there's lots of opinions floating around. People are wrestling with the meaning of Jesus' presence and of his power. But having Jesus compared to some of the great heroes of Israel might be flattering to his disciples or maybe even to us. But Jesus skips right past what the crowds are saying and gets right to the heart of the disciples. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? I know, I've heard what public opinion is. That's what everybody else says. Who do you say that I am? Now, this question posed by Jesus has powerful implications for the disciples, the, the same way that it has powerful implications for us today. You see, if Jesus is their buddy, if he's their friend, they're under no obligation to him or to his authority. He's just their buddy. 
Now, if Jesus is a, a rabbi or a teacher, then they are pupils or students that are supposed to learn his style of teaching, his rhetoric. And if they think Jesus is a prophet, then Jesus is a voice for God that people can either obey or disobey. If he's Elijah, then Jesus is simply the forerunner for all that God has promised is coming through the Messiah and through the kingdom. This is, he is just the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. The one who comes before the king. And of course, his disciples already know that he's, he's not John the Baptist, but how they answer this question determines reality for them. It determines what the necessary response to his presence and to his power actually is. And now Jesus is standing there looking his disciples in the eye and saying to them, who do you say that I am? We don't know how long it took as they thought about the question. But I imagine a little tension hanging in the air. As the disciples wrestle with the weight of what Jesus is asking. Imagine the force of this moment when all of a sudden Peter speaks up. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Imagine the hush fell upon the disciples. They've, they've been thinking about what Jesus is and what it could mean, but they haven't spoken the words in this succinct of a way. This is a defining moment for them. In fact, each of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record this moment. It is obvious that this moment stands out in their minds. It is definitive for the disciples. Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised King. And if this is true, the kingdom of God is here. If that is true, the promises of God are beginning to be fulfilled. What God has been talking about through the entirety of the Old Testament is now being brought to bear in this moment. And if it is true that Jesus is the Messiah, then all of Israel, according to the prophecies of the Old Testament, all of Israel, and indeed all of the world is being called to surrender to his reign, to his authority, to his rule as king. Do you see the implications of this? It's massive. To say that Jesus is the Messiah means that they are expecting the world to bow down to his authority. It's a huge statement. You know, as we sit here this morning, this question still hangs as the most relevant question of our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? If I could ask it on behalf of Jesus in the first person, Jesus is essentially asking him, am I your buddy? Am I just your friend? Am I a rabbi or a teacher with ideas that you're welcome to pick through and embrace or disregard at your, at your own convenience or as you see fit? Am I a genie that's needed to grant wishes or blessing? God, bless this, heal this, do this thing. Or am I guru that helps you to attain your best life now? 
Or more importantly, am I the king of all kings? The Lord of all lords. The one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth who is calling the world to live in obedience to my rule and to my reign. What am I to you? Who am I to you? How you answer that question determines the way that you live. It will affect your relationships. It will affect your identity, your character, the way you use your time, your talents, your treasure. It will affect your daily habits. It'll affect the way that you pray. It will affect the way that you value and treasure the words that are in this book right here. It'll affect the way that you approach worship when you come and you gather in the sanctuary or when you are by yourself in the car where nobody else sees and you are overwhelmed with the reality that the king of, the, of kings has adopted you into his family. It will affect everything in your life. No part of your life will be untouched. It will affect the way that you view your neighbor who does not know Jesus, that you know one day will stand before the king of all the earth and give an account for their lives. It will affect the way that you love them and your longing to see them saved. How you answer that question is the single most defining thing for you as a believer in Jesus. Who do you say that I am? You know, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 17 to 19, Jesus congratulates Peter and tells him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're, you're Peter, and on this rock, the rock of your confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's that phrase, the gates of hell. And I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And indeed, this was true. Peter was the one who would, who would open the gates, use those keys to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 souls would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They would go from death into life through the preaching and the proclamation of the good news that the king has arrived. 3,000 people would repent, get baptized, and surrender their lives to the authority of King Jesus. But it's interesting to note here that Mark doesn't report the congratulations of Jesus to Peter or the promise that's given to Peter in response. Peter interestingly enough, probably helped John Mark pen this gospel. This is probably Peter's account, but he doesn't mention any of the positives, the blessing that came after. Peter is keeping the focus squarely upon Jesus. And probably even more than that, Peter saw Jesus as the Messiah, but he recognized in this moment, even in this declaration, just a few moments later, he would go on to say, no, your death is not necessary. The cross is not necessary. You don't need to go to the cross. Peter recognized that even in that moment when he's declaring that Jesus is the Christ, and even in the moment when that is a revelation from God, he does not see clearly. He only sees partially. Notice the very next verse, verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You might have uh, the same question as the disciples at this point. Why does he keep saying that? 
Why does he keep, why doesn't he just come out and tell everybody, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one, I'm the Christ? Why does he keep doing that? Well, if we keep reading, he tells us, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus foretells his death. This is the moment where things take a strange turn, even even a jarring turn for the disciples. Instead of aligning with their vision of a great and conquering messianic king, who throws off the shackles of Roman oppression, Jesus starts talking about the pain that lies ahead. And Mark, he says in verse 32 that Jesus said these things plainly. You think about this, you know, Peter and, and John Mark are writing from the future after the resurrection of Jesus, and they're looking back and they go, man, we missed it. He told it to us plainly exactly what would happen. We just, we couldn't see, we couldn't understand what God had planned. And Peter responds by trying not to embarrass Jesus, (laughs) pulling him aside from the group. Peter does the most audacious thing, especially after what he just said about Jesus, calling him the king, calling him the Christ, the Messiah. He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter's mind is racing. No, 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 no. no. This can't be. That's, That's not how the kingdom works. This is not the story of the Messiah. Going to a cross and dying? That's not how this thing works. My my version of the king and of the kingdom of the Messiah involves thrones and and armies and, and, and victory over Rome. Jesus, your version of the kingdom doesn't match my version. Jesus, you need to change your version in order to match my version. Think about the power of that. Before responding to Peter, verse 34 tells us that Jesus looks over and sees his disciples watching Peter trying to reason with Jesus. Reason with Jesus. He knows that they are watching to see how he handles this. And then he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see here, Jesus tells Peter that his human agenda is more in line with the great enemy of God than with God's agenda. See, just like Satan... Peter had his own plans for the kingdom and the king. Jesus was a means to Peter's end because his mind was set on the things that men worry about. Money, power, fame, pride, position. And Jesus rebukes him to say, no, Peter, no, It is you that needs to bend around my Father's vision for the kingdom, not the other way around. It is you that needs to adjust, not God. Would you you let that settle into your heart this morning? Peter needed to adjust to God's king and God's kingdom, and to build his life around that reality. We're all in need of letting that truth sink deep into our hearts to a greater and greater degree. Peter didn't get it. 
Embracing the cross meant valuing God's will and his reign as king more than his own comfort. Peter was concerned about a political kingdom. Jesus was focused on the redemption of the universe and of mankind. Peter was blinded by his own desires, but but Jesus saw that his father had planned all of this out. He saw it with clarity, and he set his face like flint. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 tells us. He was determined with laser light focus, determined to go to the cross, determined to suffer, determined to die. He set his face like flint because it was the Father's will, the Father's kingdom above his own comfort. Peter was saying, my will be done. In contrast to Jesus up until the very end in the Garden of Gethsemane, Praying to his father. Lord, you know what I would love. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. See, this is why the author of Hebrews encourages us in Hebrews 12 too. He tells us we, we should be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That admonishment to look to Jesus as our example is an encouragement to you and I to do what Jesus did, to value the eternal reign of God more than the temporary discomfort of this life. He valued the kingdom more than his own comfort. He looked beyond the suffering to redemption. See, and Peter couldn't see that far yet. He couldn't, he couldn't see the whole picture. He saw only in part all that would be required in following Jesus. He would need yet another touch from Jesus. He would need the Holy Spirit. And here we see the proof of partial blindness among the disciples. They saw Jesus, they saw the king, they saw the kingdom, but they didn't see it all clearly. Beginning in verse 34 and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So right after this conversation, Jesus calls a crowd of people around. His disciples are there. And he said to them, if any one of you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. At this moment, Jesus turns and begins calling the crowd to himself and to the disciples. As the people begin to draw close, Jesus launches directly into a public teaching, a proclamation. To summarize the main point of what Jesus is saying here, it is essentially this. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to let go of your kingdom and follow mine. The path to the crown is through the cross. Trying to hold on to your kingdom means losing it all. Letting go of your kingdom for my sake and for the gospels means gaining it all. The kingdom that the world is striving for, what good is it if you you gain the whole world? 
but you lose your very own soul in the process. Matter of fact, let, let, let me read it to you from the message translation, the words of Eugene Peterson as he seeks to kind of get at the heart of the text here. He says this, same verses, but from the message translation. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me, and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do you to get everything that you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? If you're embarrassed over me and the way I'm leading you, when you get around your fickle and unfocused friends, know that you will be an even greater embarrassment to the Son of Man when he arrives in all the splendor of God the Father with the army of holy angels. And then he drove the point home by saying, this isn't pie in the sky by and by. Some of you who are standing here are going to see it happen. The kingdom of God will arrive with full force. You hear those words? Let me put it to you this way. The key to seeing the kingdom of God clearly and enjoying the life that God intends through Jesus and through the gospel is letting go of a kingdom of your own design. When Jesus spoke these words to the people around him, it would have created shock and disgust. To get crucified was the direct result of challenging the kingdom of Caesar. If you showed that you were unwilling to surrender to the rule of the kingdom of Rome, the cross was in your future. Rome would not tolerate People trying to establish a different kingdom than theirs. Nobody wants the cross willingly. The cross is punishment. The cross is suffering. The cross is shame. The cross is a one-way trip that ends in death. And Jesus is calling all that would follow him to that level of commitment. He's saying this is a one-way journey. If you're going to follow me, you have to embrace everything that comes with that. If you're going to follow me, you need to know where I'm headed. doesn't matter what suffering lies ahead. I, I, I know the redemption that lies on the other side. If you follow me, you'll have to learn to embrace the suffering and the judgment from the world around you for the sake of the joy that lies beyond it. You will have to live at odds with the way that this world works, putting your hope in a far better kingdom, no matter the cost. You can sum up these final verses here by saying that Jesus gave Three commands, four fours, and a promise. Three commands. Found in verse 34. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Three commands. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Being condemned to carry a cross meant judgment, shame, suffering, and death. You had done something wrong. You had offended the powers that be. You were there as a judgment. You were being shamed. You were going to suffer, and you were going to die. That's what it meant to, to carry the cross. And Jesus is telling his disciples to embrace that. to take in that reality, sit in it for a minute, and let it shape your commitment to Jesus. Embrace it. 
Embrace the suffering. Embrace the judgment. And that it would require self-denial. This self-denial then means that there is a self, there's a part of ourselves that longs for the opposite of those things that Jesus is describing that are a part of the cross. There's a self that desires, instead of judgment, acceptance. There's a self that desires, instead of the shame, glory. There is a a self that, that desires, instead of suffering, we want comfort. And instead of death, we want life. And Jesus is saying, that self that that wants to avoid the pain of the cross, that wants to avoid the, the judgment, the shame, the suffering, and the death, that's the part you tell no. That's the part you deny. Jesus is commanding his disciples to deny the self that wants those things. In other words, these will not be natural desires. These will be supernatural desires. Though there will be a part of our hearts that longs for acceptance, for glory, for comfort, and for life, we must tell that part no. And he also tells us this is not a needless invitation to just go out and start looking for ways to suffer. But instead, he says that this type of suffering has a point. It's for his name's sake and the gospel. When bringing, when living in such a way that you are valuing the king and the kingdom, the glory of the gospel and the king of the universe, when that brings you into conflict in life to where you are now suffering as a consequence, embrace it. Deny your tendency to want to run away from it. It's for the sake of Jesus and the sake of the gospel. And he says, follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This part of, this, this aspect of following Jesus is really interesting. In, in Luke's gospel, in uh, the ninth chapter, verse 23, Luke adds one little word, another interesting qualifier. He says, take up your cross daily. Daily. So living in this way where we value the king and the kingdom first and foremost above everything else, no matter what it costs, this is a daily way of living. It's a daily way of living that embraces suffering. This type of valuing Jesus and the gospel is something that we practice daily. In following Jesus. This type of cross-bearing, self-denial is something that we practice daily in life while following Jesus. The question that maybe you're asking, the one that I ask myself, why would we do that? That sounds hard. That sounds difficult. Well, Jesus gives four motivations, four fours here. F-O-R's. At the beginning of verse 35, four Whoever whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you'll save it. And that's easy to sort of spiritualize this. And that's one of the tragedies of the modern uh, dilemma is that we're so removed from suffering, we don't we don't find it easy to take this literally, okay? Don't miss the force of of what it meant to the disciples. Jesus is literally telling them they're trying to get their lives spared by not identifying with the Messiah and the gospel will cause them to lose their lives ultimately, finally, in judgment. And then he flips the logic around and he says, but even if you die for the sake of Jesus and the good news about his kingdom, you will save your life ultimately. 
Now, every disciple, with the exception of the Apostle John, would face this in reality. They would all lose their lives for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. And John, even though he didn't die being martyred, he was boiled in oil and stuck on an island somewhere to break rocks. Wasn't a comfortable life following Jesus. This level of commitment that Jesus was calling his disciples to was serious. Oh, and by the way, the command of Jesus hasn't changed. This is still the radical commitment that Jesus calls his disciples to. Do you know that? To live and to die for the name of Jesus, for the glory of God, for the good of the kingdom. This is a radical call. We're meant to feel the weight of it right alongside of the disciples. We're meant to sit in it. Notice his logic. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? If you get everything in this life, but you lose eternity, what good is that? You know what I'm concerned with? Let me, let me confess some sin to you. You know what I'm concerned with? Retirement. That's what I'm concerned with. What comes after this? What happens when I'm too old or because I, I like bacon, you know, I become disabled and can no longer stand up here and preach? What, what happens? You know, am I destined to be, you know, a, a Walmart greeter for the rest of my life? I, I'm concerned about the future. Jesus says, feel the concern, live for me. Feel the concern, but live for me and for my kingdom. What good is it, Jeremy? You have a fat retirement account. Then one day you stand face to face with me to give an account for your life. And you've done nothing to live for my kingdom, for my glory. Isn't that the logic that follows? He says, what can a man give in return for his soul? In the words of Dr. Ken Townsend, who joined us during our sermon prep this week, the reader needs to know and understand the value of a soul. The soul is so precious, so valuable, that the only price that could be paid to redeem it was the Son of God on a cross. What could you give from this life that equals that value? Nothing. He goes on to say, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of in the second coming and when I return the glory of the Father with the angels in tow. There is a day when Jesus will return and those who were ashamed of Jesus and his words in this life will be even more ashamed when staring directly into his eyes. And Jesus is saying, it's better to bear a little bit of shame now than eternal shame of having denied him by action or by words. This is meant to motivate us when we feel fear. Guys, I feel it too. I feel it when I, I feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to speak in the name of Jesus to that unbelieving friend. I feel it too. I feel I'm a pastor, and yes, I get nervous sharing the gospel. I get nervous in certain company talking about Jesus because I'm, I'm waiting for the judgment to come. I'm waiting for the, you know, the associations with the, the radical right that, and, and all the, the political quagmire that comes with, with being a Christian in the modern day age. I get nervous about those things. But listen, I'm meant to hear these words and recognize 
that bearing the shame now is worth it because when I stand before Jesus, I won't be ashamed of having to speak his name. This is a radical call. Do you feel it? Do you hear it? We're meant to feel the weight right alongside the disciples. The, the four fours here are meant to motivate us with reasoning toward radical commitment and loyalty to Jesus and the gospel. And Jesus' logic is meant to call us forward into the one-way journey, a life of total commitment to the kingdom of Christ. Three commands, four fours, and one promise. The promise is found in verse 1 of chapter 9. Some of you who stand here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming with power. Some of the disciples that were standing there along with the crowd would see the glory of God break through Christ in the transfiguration in the next few verses. And later in Acts, they would see the glory of God breaking through one another as the Holy Spirit descended upon them and empowered them to be witnesses and to be bold in sharing the gospel in the name of Jesus. And fire would light up on top of their heads as if they, as if they were little miniature burning bushes. For right now, all that they could see in part. They could not see with clarity all that God would call them to, but over time they would grow to see with greater clarity. See, just like when I got married, how I didn't see all that would be required of me. I was blind to what it would take. But by the grace of God, He gifted me with a patient wife who was gracious willing to walk alongside of me while I was in the process of growing into the kind of man that I need to be. She was gracious enough to let me grow, and Jesus, too, is patient and gracious. Though the disciples were partially blind, they saw it, they saw the king, they saw the kingdom, but they didn't see it clearly. Yet Jesus loved them. He kept calling them forward. He kept drawing them to himself a little bit. You're going to get it. Come on. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. You're going to get it. Keep following me. Take up your cross. Keep coming. The invitation beckoning them forward in life to greater and greater clarity and understanding who he is and who they were in his life. He would come again and again to touch their blindness and help them see clearly. Reflecting on that reality this morning, I find my heart longing to see the king and his kingdom more clearly. I find myself filled with hope as I once again reach for the hand of my patient and loving Savior as he says, Jeremy, take up your cross, follow me. It'll make sense, follow me. And I find myself challenged toward absolute surrender in every area of my life. I pray that you feel it too. As the worship band comes up to close out our time here, we're going to be taking communion. And there's two aspects to communion. We're not going to be doing this corporately together. It won't be led up front. Just during these last two worship songs, uh, I want you to take communion together, uh, individually or with your family. The two things I want you to be thinking about. First of all is the memorial aspect. It's a celebration memorial. We take the as we take the bread, we remember that what Jesus has done for us, how he offered himself as the Lamb of God to sacrifice and redeem his people. His body was broken to initiate this covenant relationship with God. And when we take the cup, it reminds us that it, it was his blood that was spilled to redeem us from sin and spare us the wrath of God. When we eat and drink, we give thanks to God for all that he's done. It's a celebration memorial, but there's another aspect, and that's consecration renewal. You see, we're bringing fresh to our minds that we have been called into the kingdom of Christ. By eating the bread, we're saying, God, I have been united with you. In the same way that this bread now has become a part of my body, so too I have been united with you, and you are a part of me.
So we drink the cup. We're recognizing that the redemption that came from the lifeblood of Jesus is now alive and working in us. What, what the world will enjoy someday, what they will experience in the return of Christ is now being lived and displayed in my life. We are the first fruits of redemption. It's now being experienced through the church. So it's a moment as you take communion to sit into those two truths to reflect before the Lord. Say, God, thank you for what you've done. And also, God, thank you for what you've called me to in my life in you. Show me how to live it. Father, bless now this time of worship as we come to you. Focus our hearts. Draw our attention. Bring us into deep dialogue with you. And we ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.